Welcome to The Long Run. This is a podcast for biotech adventurers. I'm your host, Luke Timmerman. Today's guest is Thong Lee. Lee is the CEO of Accelerator Life Science Partners. It's a venture capital-backed operation that starts and nurtures biotech startups in Seattle, New York, San Diego, and other places outside the main industry clusters of Boston and San Francisco. Accelerator, founded back in 2003, currently invests out of a $63 million fund and has seven active startups in its portfolio. Arch Venture Partners and Alexandria Real Estate Equities are a couple of stalwart members of its syndicate. And as CEO for the past five years, Lee has enlisted a broader group of big pharma corporate VCs to support the model. J&J, Pfizer, AbbVie, Eli Lilly, and Wu Shi are all now active investors. Accelerator's most recent investment was a $31 million Series A bet on science at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston. The idea is to build on some new learnings about apoptosis to make drugs that could potentially protect neurons from that natural cell death process. If you could do that, theoretically, you could slow down or maybe stave off certain neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's. In this episode, I talk with Lee about the approach Accelerator takes to starting new companies and how it likes to work with scientific entrepreneurs at academic institutions. This is a conversation for anyone interested in the world of early stage biotech investment. This is the murky intersection where scientific discoveries either succeed or fail to grow into a product. Now, before we get started, if you enjoy listening to these in-depth interviews, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. This is where you can read in-depth features and focused research articles you won't find anywhere else. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person and expect two to three articles per week. Discounted subscriptions are available for academic institutions and for corporate groups that obtain sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. Now, join me and Thong Lee for the long run. Okay, so here I am in the office of Accelerator CEO Thong Lee here in Seattle. Welcome, Thong. Thanks for joining me on the long run. Good afternoon. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I should tell the listeners a bit of a disclosure here. So Thong and I, you and I are about the same age. We've been in biotech for about the same amount of time here in Seattle. It was all the way back to my time at the Seattle Times, and you were at Washington Research Foundation doing some venture capital work. And I determined very early on that you were one of these people who had your finger on the pulse of what was going on in Seattle biotech, usually before it was about to be announced. (laughs) (laughs) And we've stayed in touch over the years. I actually... To this day, I sublease a private office suite from Accelerator, and I do that partly because, um, you know, I'm a sole proprietor. I could lease from a co-working space anywhere in town, but I like being close to the subscribers of Timberman Report, the readers, so that I stay in touch. 
And, and every now and then we can talk around the water cooler about what's new. <laughs> well, I think that's been a wonderful asset, I think, for everybody. And also, I think uh, I'm a big believer in building communities, especially in the life sciences. And uh, having proximity to folks like you and others, I think, has been a great uh, valuable resource for us, especially as we've built companies and, and done all the things that we've done in Seattle, New York, and, and elsewhere. I guess if the interview doesn't go well, you can always kick me out of my office space. <laughs> I thought you were going to say become a professional landlord. <laughs> there, there are other ways to make a living. Um, so let's start off with your beginnings. Now, you're uh, you're a, a son of Seattle. I actually, Tacoma, I think. Is, yeah, is that right? That's right. So that's right. Tell me, tell me about uh, where you come from originally. Well, so uh, my family is an immigrant one, uh, you know, came to this country right around uh, 1974, 75, you know, at the height of the uh, Vietnam War. And uh, they fled the country. And at the time, uh, my mom was pregnant with me when we uh, came to this country. And then shortly after landing here in Tacoma, where we had other family members, uh, I was born shortly thereafter in uh, November. And uh, I've grown up, uh, for the most part, in the Tacoma area. And then, uh, you know, obviously, as I got older, um, I shipped off east to uh, do my schooling. And then I stayed there for a number of years. I lived abroad for a little bit for graduate school, uh, came back to Boston, worked there. And then eventually I found uh, found my way back to Seattle, well, uh, as back, it were. Let's back up a little bit here, Thong. So you're the oldest, right? I, I'm actually the child number three oh, you are? of four. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. I know your younger brother. Yeah. So you're my younger brother. I've got an older brother. And then my oldest is a, my sister, obviously. And uh, all of them actually live in this area. Now, your family... Is originally from Laos, is that right? Vietnam. Oh, they are from Vietnam. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, which part? Uh, one from the north and one from the south, actually. Okay. Pretty wow. interesting. So mid seventies. This is right at the end of right the at the end when everything was uh, at, at its worst. Yeah. yeah. Wow. So, um, how, what did your parents uh, find to do here in Washington State? Well, it's an interesting story. I mean, my father, who uh, you know, obviously uh, in Vietnam, uh, you know, had a, a pretty good profession. I mean, he actually uh, taught math at uh, university and other places like that. And uh, then, through a variety of circumstances, became involved in uh, some military-related activity, um, supporting the United States actually in the uh, you know attempt to overthrow the communist government. And then, when that all kind of fell apart. Uh, he fled the country with my mom. You know, at the time we had uh, two young kids, my brother and my sister, and then she was pregnant with me. And so, as you can imagine, during that time, it was a pretty, uh, you know, pretty tough set of circumstances. I think a lot of people were trying to to flee the country for safety. And uh, my my parents actually, through a variety of different you know circumstances, ended up being able to leave the country. And they initially left via boat, and then eventually found their way from boat to airplane to get to. California, and then ultimately up to Tacoma, where my extended family was. Um, and when my father actually first came here, I mean, he obviously was unemployed and uh, did a lot of what I call pretty menial jobs. I mean, he went from, you know, and you can imagine this must have been tough for him. Um, and he's retold this story to us many times. But he, you know, uh, came to this country as a highly educated person. And one of the first jobs that he had was a janitor, right? Because he had to feed a uh, young family with a new kid on the way. Wow. So he was a janitor for a while. He then went from there to fixing TVs and uh, did that for a while. And then eventually, uh, as fate would have it, he ran into an old colleague of his that uh, he knew from back in Vietnam. And through that relationship, it allowed him to then uh, get into uh, social work. And uh, he became a social worker, went back to school, uh, did some night courses. And while he was fixing TVs and cleaning toilets, uh, he eventually was able to get some additional education that allowed him to become a social worker. 
And then he transitioned into social work, which is, uh, I would consider an incredibly tough profession, but he did that for over 30 years. And on the back of that job, he took care of the four of us, which was myself, younger brother, older brother, and an oldest sister. And on a reasonably modest income, I mean, I, I, I would commend him for the fact that, you know, of the four of us, two of us went to Harvard, you know, yeah. uh, the other two went to college and, uh, you know, it was, um, you know, a really proud moment for him to be able to see uh, us realize uh, something much bigger. That's a really inspiring kind of classic immigrant yeah. story. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's something that's always uh, stayed with me, uh, you know, as, as I've grown up because, uh, you know, we didn't have all the luxuries of, uh, of having, uh, you know, all the benefits of having money or things like that. Uh, education was really our path to success. And uh, that was certainly one of the things that, you know, early on in my career, I, I focused on. You must have... Uh gotten pretty good grades. Did you go to Tacoma Public Schools? I went to public schools. I went to uh, Lincoln High School, actually, in Tacoma. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did well there. I did really well there. And, um, you know, obviously it was uh, good enough that uh, it allowed me to apply to some colleges when the time came. And I got into all the colleges and and, uh, was very fortunate that I got accepted to Harvard and uh, ended up going to Harvard, uh, which in and of itself was a life-changing experience for me personally and professionally. What was that like being a kid from uh, this, this kind of background, like you described, going off to this rarefied place? Uh, well, it was uh, it, it was very much that. I mean, I would say it was a very rarefied place. It was a very different environment than than I certainly was used to and and, and had grown up in. Um, I felt I would say for the first year or two, I felt very uncomfortable because I was uh, you know very acutely aware of being surrounded by some folks who were very well to do. Uh, had all the privileges of, uh, you know, uh, families who understood the value of education and the benefits of that. Uh, and uh, here I was, I came, you know, essentially from nothing, uh, in a, from an inner city background. And uh, I often felt like I was just not smart enough or, or just not talented enough. And I found myself questioning myself a lot, I think, in those early days. But, but I, I kept at it. I worked very hard and uh, I made some good friends when I was there. And uh, it, it really changed my life. I mean, the experience was, was wonderful. And uh, it opened up a lot of doors for me uh, personally and professionally. Did you go in knowing what you wanted to do or did you figure that out along the way like most undergrads? Well, I think like anybody else, I mean, my parents were keen on uh, having, you know, all of us. And I say all of us, meaning all of my siblings and I to pursue what you would expect any Asian parent to want their kids to do, which is medicine, right? <laughs> and so, you know, early on, uh, you know, they were you know, very adamant that, you know, we took on science and math and, and did well in that, which we did. Uh, but to really, you know, pursue a path, a career path that in their minds was respectable, had a stable income, you know, to it, uh, and would allow us to gain the kind of respect and influence that they thought was important and was important in, in their own country. And so, you know, obviously early on, you know, I did have an, a, a strong interest in chemistry and biology. Uh, I thought I was good at math. So I said, hey, you know, my, you know, my, why, why not try medicine? And for the first couple of years when I was at Harvard, I mean, that was essentially the path that I was on, that I was interested in pursuing research and, and wanting to do medicine, uh, wanting to pursue a medical career. But, you know, I always knew, I think uh, early on as I kind of got into college, I mean, I had a lot of other interests. And even from the stuff I did in high school, you know, I felt a strong desire to want to be part of building something. You know, I had been involved in community service organizations uh, and other student based organizations where I took something that was small, built it into something that was more substantial. And that always stayed with me. And so when I got into college, the, the same passions were ignited when I got into different activities. And I think that after the second year or so of college, it just became very clear to me after doing some things during the summer and, and really looking into the career path of being a doctor that it wasn't really where my heart was at. 
but I was certainly fascinated about science and I was fascinated about advancing uh, the development of science. And I wanted to see if there were other options in that. And fortunately, through the path of, of my time in college and then even after college, uh, I had a chance to explore some of that. And it helped to give me some light into where I ultimately am now, which I would not have expected to be. Um, but it led me into this path where I'm now building companies with, with, with scientists and entrepreneurs. So you felt like you had the entrepreneurial bug, that you wanted to do something entrepreneurial. Yeah, I think that's accurate. I mean, I think it was that. And, you know, I, I still was very interested and in intellectually curious about science uh, in a way that, you know, uh, I think that I, I still carry to me, carry with me today. Um, but I just didn't know what that would mean in terms of a career. I mean, and, and normally when you go into colleges like Harvard or Stanford or other places like that, you know, your eyes are open to a breadth of career options that you never knew before, investment banking, consulting and things like that. And so I dabbled with a number of these things to get some experience. But ultimately, you know, at that age, 22, 23, 24, you're still trying to figure it out. And, you know, to be honest with you, there's still days where I wake up today where I'm still thinking maybe I am him. I'm still trying to figure it out today. But one thing that's been clear to me is that, you know, I've gotten a lot of enjoyment and pleasure around working with people who are passionate about doing things to, to make change. And uh, I really find myself drawn to people who like to build businesses and companies uh, for the standpoint that they want to advance something and, and to do that with the help of others. And uh, that, you know, for me has been kind of the, the, the driving theme behind all, all the things that I've done since leaving college. So let's fast forward. You, uh, you decided you wanted to come back to Seattle. Uh, I'm sure your parents were very happy about this. Oh, they were thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> I was, uh, well, I was at that time, I mean, this was back 99, 2000. I mean, this is right as the, the internet boom was kind of going, and I was kind of the lone child that was still, you know, quote, away from home. I was living in Boston at the time. I had just wrapped up a, a small startup company that I ran that was, uh, ended up getting acquired, and uh, I was really looking for something else to do. And after having a conversation with my dad, who basically said, well, why the heck are you not looking for something closer to home, like in Seattle or something like that? And then me kind of poo-pooing that idea, but then ultimately coming back to it and, uh, you know, finding a, a pretty unique place to work, which I called home for well, over 14 years. And uh, it, it, it allowed me to come back to Seattle and uh, to really have a, a special impact. Now, this was the Washington Research mm -hmm. Foundation. Tell us about how that came about. Well, it was kind of interesting. It was through a, a variety of contacts that I had with people who were affiliated to the University of Washington that when I decided that, you know, I'd take my dad up on, on what he had suggested to look for things in Seattle, I simply reached out to my network of folks I knew in Seattle, and through those relationships, uh, I was put in touch with the folks at uh, Washington Research Foundation, and I presented myself at a time that was actually quite interesting for them historically, because they were making the transition, or starting to make the transition to investing directly into startup companies, and they were still trying to figure it out, I think is probably the fair thing to say. They were looking at the beginning of the dot-com boom, and they were concerned about missing opportunities. They saw a lot of changes happening in the life sciences, but weren't quite sure what direction things were going to go. And then here I was, I showed up, you know, I was probably the, the first new person that they had hired to their professional team in a long time. I and mean, most of the folks had been there for well over 10 years. And I had a, I, I have and still do have a tremendous amount of respect for the people there. And it was one of the big reasons that, uh, you know, I agreed to, to come on board and, and to join them um, and to move cross country and come back home. It wasn't one of these people, uh, Bill Gates Sr. It was. With WRF. Yeah. So I had a conversation with him. 
I also had a conversation with an, another individual who was affiliated with the tech licensing and transfer office. And coincidentally, they just all led me back to Washington Research Foundation. And so at that point, I kind of said, well, fate, for some reason, fate is drawing me to have this conversation with these people. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, like years before, I mean, I had I'd heard about this organization, but not really known a lot about them. And uh, after then making the connection with them and then sitting down and having a conversation with them, it became really clear that there were complementary skills that I had that they were looking for. And uh, they were really looking to try to shape their investment program. And so I came to them at the right time. And, uh, you know, what I expected to do was to stay there for a little bit, uh, help them with that and move on. But then that little bit ended up being, like I said, about 14 years. And well, it's wonderful. And for those unfamiliar, Washington Research Foundation is an independent arm's length group uh, that was set up in the early 80s to manage intellectual property that spun out of the University of Washington. Um, and, and actually, they had some quite valuable intellectual property uh, that was widely used throughout the biotech industry and uh, it generated a fair amount of, uh, of cash, which they needed to invest. And yeah. that, that's where you came in and went to work and sort of became the eyes and ears on the ground looking for new opportunities yeah. to invest in. Uh, and a number of those, you were there, as you say, 13, 14 years and got uh, got WRF engaged in a lot of companies, Alder Biopharmaceuticals, it's public today, Chorus Pharma got bought by Gilead, uh, Hyperion Therapeutics went public and I think got acquired. I mean, you, you put together a track record there as, as a a young venture capitalist yeah. uh, that, uh, that, that made a, a good number of bets. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, I, I would say one of the things that, you know, that I was very fortunate to be able to do was that I crossed the paths of a number of incredibly talented entrepreneurs and scientists who were working on novel ideas. And I found a way to help legitimately help those individuals. And so I stuck to, you know, a strategy that said, can you work with early stage entrepreneurs, scientists, you know, et cetera, and really find a way to be impactful early before things were really being figured out. Right. And so the vast majority of the, you know, the groups that, that I ended up partnering with when I was at WRF and ended up being successful investments were people that fit in that mantra. They were very talented folks. Some of them had startup experience. Some of them did not. Uh, many of them were very capable in the areas in which they were developing technologies, but had never you know, undergone this entrepreneurial journey before. And I typically was involved with them through WRF at the very earliest stages. And so I found myself in conversations around shaping these business plans, looking at assets, focusing those assets, all the things that you would expect to need to do in the blocking and tackling side as you're setting up the strategy for getting these companies started. And, uh, you know, in that e effort, you know, I was very fortunate that I uh, worked with some folks that were ended up being very successful. Uh, many of them took years to be successful and realize that success. But nevertheless, uh, it was a wonderful occurrence for uh, us and for the foundation. It allowed the foundation to make a fair amount of money on those investments and uh, support its broader mission of scholarship and research and funding that. Um, so that for me was incredibly rewarding. It's what kept me there so long. Yeah, this is a, an aspect of the scientific enterprise that I think both you and I find really interesting. It's that point when a, a discovery has been made or um, a technology has been developed that may have potential, but someone needs to figure out how to run the series of translational experiments necessary to find out if this is going to become a business or a viable product. Yeah. It's early stage investment. That's where early stage investment capital comes in. Yeah. The private sector flexes its muscles with people and, and money and yeah. connections. Uh, and, and that's a place where uh, it, it's a, it's fraught with risk. Uh, but, um, 
It's really interesting. It is. And I, and I would also say, I mean, you know, uh, you know, true to form, I mean, WRF, you know, when I was there and when I was investing, uh, was very much in the classic early stage investment game where, you know, investing didn't mean just writing a check. I mean, it often meant writing small checks, really trying to figure out and get your hands dirty to try to help these teams of, of entrepreneurs and scientists to really figure out the strategy of the business. What do you focus on? Where do you go first? Where do you go second? Who do you partner with? All the difficult things. And then also building the company and the business, right? Recruiting all the people to help and, and bringing other parties to the table that can, can advance the development efforts. Uh, we did that and cut our teeth on that. And uh, I, I would say that it served as a, a wonderful foundation for me in doing the things that we today are doing at Accelerator Life Science Partners. Okay. So come, let's see, summer of 2013, is this about right? You get the call to come join Accelerator. Yes. Now, Accelerator, for those unfamiliar, uh, I, I've been covering this thing since the very beginning. It was uh, a spin out from the Institute for Systems Biology originally, kind of an outlet valve for a lot of Lee Hood's creative ideas that, that may become businesses. Listeners may know I wrote the book on Hood just a couple years ago. Um, and, and it vested in about a dozen companies in that, say, first 10 years. Um, some of them looked like they had a lot of promise as platform technologies, but none really hit it big with an IPO or a big acquisition, at least not that we've been able to report on. Um, so it came to a, a, a transition point where something needed to happen. Yeah. And, and you came in. And what was your mandate then as the new CEO? Well, I think at the time when I came in, it was at you know a real inflection point for the organization because it had you know built some capabilities around building what I call sort of a, a toolkit for uh, platform type technology companies. And so, Accelerator during that time and, and before I came on board formally had tinkered, I think, with a lot of different early stage science and was was uh, pretty well versed at building some companies or at least getting companies started uh, around pretty early stage platform companies. And so. On the back of what had been established there, I then, uh, through a variety of different circumstances, was asked to step in. And uh, what I had in front of me, I thought, was a wonderful substrate, you know, at least from the standpoint of the people and uh, those that we had engaged with the effort. I think that what really needed to happen was to take, you know, with a fresh set of eyes, uh, a look at what was happening in the current marketplace, assets and technologies, and how best do you play a transformational role and grabbing some of those really more promising technologies and running with them in such a way that you can really build a portfolio of a variety of different companies. And so one of the, the early insights that I had on this was to, A, take a look at what we had. And, and the, like I said, the good things we had, there was a wonderful team that was already there. They were committed to the cause, wanted to see additional companies being built through this mechanism, but needing leadership. And the second thing that I saw that was 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 important for me before taking this on was that there were stakeholders at the table that were still... Uh, behind the concept, but knew that the, the the model needed to be reinvigorated. Well, maybe we should step back and talk about this model for for those unfamiliar. Sure. Um, it's uh, uh, it has some lab infrastructure. Alexander Real Estate was one of the founding investors mm -hmm. and has been with it all the way. Mm -hmm. And um, you have a, a, what you could call a distributed management team, some kind of shared management mm -hmm. services, mm -hmm. finance, accounting, um, executive leadership mm -hmm. for what you might call proto companies, mm -hmm. like things that are, uh, that need that, that maybe just 5 million. Uh, and that was kind of a typical investment size, Yeah, $5 million to run for the next year or two to run some 
killer translational experiments to see can this become a bigger company that leaves the nest and goes out and gets more venture capital. Mm-hmm. The ultimate mandate, though, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's like any venture capital-backed operation. It's, it's supposed to generate returns. Yeah. Um, so um, you you enter this um, environment, and there's a lot of things, as you say, that are that are working mm-hmm. that that you liked. Yes. Um, but then you wanted to change, put your stamp on things and do things a little bit differently. I know for uh, at the time you, you took the job, you, you talked about um, a, a portfolio, as you say, of early stage and some later stage opportunities, yeah. some platforms, but also maybe some single asset type uh, de-risking plays. Yeah. Uh, how has your thinking evolved over time? around that portfolio. Well, interestingly, I mean, I think that the strategy that we embarked upon and the the way that we've reshaped the accelerator from when I first joined to what we are today, in my mind, it's the reflection of everything that we wanted to see happen, which is that we came in with a different, fresher strategy around, you know, taking a hard look at what we did and what we did well and building on those. And I think that the primary tenants around the model, everything that you say is exactly spot on. Uh, I would say it in a much more simpler way to say that, you know, what we do is we build these high quality, uh, you know, companies uh, with the benefit of a posse. We have a posse of funding. We have a posse around us in terms of resources that we can bring to bear, both scientific and management. And then on top of that, we have a, a cluster of assets on the real estate side that allows us to quickly get the company started. So the value of the collective is always stronger than a one or two off, you know, investor group that starts a company. And so one of the things that we recognized early on is that we needed a broader collection of, you know, people in that posse. Right. And when you look at Accelerate from before, there were only, what, five or six investors, some that were not really committed to the cause. Today, we have 11. And not only do we have 11, but we focused on, you know, individuals that have very deep pockets, very long strategic timeframes in terms of what they want to see. And we also tried to, you know, really line the fit of what those organizations want with the broader set of other investors we would bring into this mix. So we broadened that. I think we also made some changes to the team to reflect the fact that we needed some slightly different capabilities than I think what had originally been established. And this is not to denigrate anything, anybody that had been there before, but it became very clear that we were evolving in a very different direction and needed a different set of skills and a different, fresher set of eyes that you know the, the current team today I think more accurately reflects that. And then when you talk about the, the type of deals we've done, you're right. We've taken a hard look at the deal flow and the things that we've seen. And what we've tried to do is we've tried to make a more concerted effort to have a more balanced portfolio where you know we've made some incredibly early bets and these are early bets around technologies where you know either a target space is incredibly exciting or a platform area is very exciting. But we've aggressively tried to focus that from day one on a reduction to therapeutic practice in a way that we can get to with a measured Series A investment. And if we can't get there with just the Series A investment, we then try to be clever about bringing additional monies in, non-dilutive if possible, to drive that development effort from that Series A to create a more valuable outcome for the company on the back of that. And similar to the old model, I mean, graduation, I think, would be a perfectly fine outcome. If we raise a Series A, it's successful, and then we could bring in a new management and team and spin that out terrific. But in our current model today, that is not the only outcome that we play for here. And certainly, you know, one of those outcomes is if everything fails and you shut it down, you do that efficiently, that's a given. But what we also are trying to do as well is with any one of the companies that we have, there are some that we will develop to a certain point that we hope that we then can turn that over to one of our strategic investors, more specifically, one of the farm up companies who has made an investment is clearly interested in that area of science. And after we take it to that inflection point, 
they then reach in and pick that up and run with it, whether that comes through a deal or an outright acquisition. If you enjoy listening to these interviews with biotech newsmakers, you'll love reading Timmerman Report, my subscription publication. You can subscribe to Timmerman Report for $149 a year per person and expect two to three in-depth articles per week. Discounts are available as well for academic institutions. Some of the best research institutions in the world are signed up. MIT, UC Berkeley, University of Chicago, and USC, to name a few. Many top pharma companies have opted to upgrade from individual subscriptions to group sharing licenses. For details, ask me at luke at timmermanreport.com. And is your company interested in raising its profile among biotech industry leaders and in supporting quality journalism? Think about sponsoring the Long Run Podcast. I'm only allowing room for one or maybe two sponsors of this show over a year's time. I don't want to bombard readers and listeners with useless ads. Your time and attention have value. And when allowing someone to sponsor this show, I want to make sure that entity has something useful and constructive to say to biotech leaders. If you fit that description and you're willing to be patient, sponsorship of the long run could be a rewarding experience. Ask me about it at luke at timmermanreport.com. I think that there were three uh, three different accelerator funds before he got here, and that had raised a total of something like maybe forty five million. Yeah, and, uh, I, I, and now and now you're you're using much larger dollars, yes. putting larger dollars to work. Sixty million out of your current accelerator fund, uh, and you brought in these other people around the table. Yeah. Ar- Arch Ventures has been there since the beginning. Yes. Alexandria has been there since the beginning. Yes. There were a few other VC firms that, as you say, kind of came and went. They dabbled a little in this really early stuff, um, but now you've got the corporate strategics: the the J and J, Pfizer, AbbVie, Lilly, um, Wuxi, Wuxi. Yeah. So there's um, there's a diverse group of people there that that ultimately, you know, some of these people could be the buyers of the technology. Correct. So you've got um, not just capital, more capital, but um, different voices around that boardroom table yeah. about what the the necessary value creation events are. That's exactly right. And that's exactly by design. So we created this collective of investors and stakeholders to do exactly that, to give us that kind of input and feedback right from day one. You know, and what that's done is, number one, it's made, you know, it's made the architecting of our deals as we're getting them up and going. Uh, it makes them a little bit more involved because we really try to tease that out as well as we can early on getting feedback, uh, getting thoughts around the specific type of animal experiments, the specific endpoints that we want to get to with each of the investments, et cetera. And so that requires more time, more engagement that we think uh, at at the end of the day creates in in some ways a competitive barrier for us for others trying to do the same thing, right? Because we benefit very clearly from that feedback and then we construct our entire product development effort around some of that feedback, uh, bring that all together and then orchestrate that into what you ultimately will see as a Series A investment. And those Series A investments that you read about in the paper, the deals that we've done, even the ones that we've done more recently, that typically behind that is anywhere between nine to 12 plus months of work that has gone into uh, that point before the, the funding has happened. But we're at that point, we're well on our way already and, and getting the money in the bank is simply a formality to then executing upon the plan that we've already had sketched out. Some people call this model venture creation. I, um, other firms do this and do it pretty well. 
Um, there's sort of that Boston Mafia, the Third Rock, Atlas, Flagship, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then uh, Arch is very well-known. Sure. Versus, yeah. sure. Um, but you, one, one aspect of the strategy here is that you're not just in the, the same um, geography as those entities are. You, you go to underserved geographies. You're based here in Seattle. Uh, you opened up a New York facility. Uh, New York has a lot going for it, but not a lot of early stage life sciences investment. Yeah. Um, you're filling that. Um, tell me about your thoughts on finding these... Um, uh, or, or going down the road less traveled, so to speak. Well, that's exactly what we do. I mean, uh, you know, we, we, we certainly are not in the business of competing with the likes of those firms that you've mentioned because we actually don't view them to be necessarily our direct sources of competition. Uh, a lot of what we do is pretty unique because at its core, uh, we're different than a traditional venture firm like that that builds companies because those groups, some of them do that in a semi-regular fashion, but we do this you know, consistently. So every single deal that you see that comes out of Accelerator, we have built from scratch, from the ground up, using our model, using our unique lens and and attributes. And it's often the case that those kinds of firms are either not at the table when we're looking at these assets, or or we're dealing with a very different party that's competing with us. Typically a pharma company, to be honest with you, who are looking to do a very different style and type of transaction, where then we step in and do something that is much more broader based than what a traditional pharma might do in the way of licensing a technology. So for the vast majority of the things that we see, we're not bumping up against the likes of Third Rock or Atlas or most of these firms. And that's just the fact, right? But what we share with them is a commonality around this notion that you can build an early stage company and attack a a disruptive area of science. And with the combination of a focused investment and then a team to really drive that effort, that is where we have some commonality with those groups. But the way that we do that and the, the construct of the resources that we have they're very different, you know, um, but we respect the work that all of those groups do because, you know, you know, for example, Arch, who is one of our you know, anchor investors from the beginning, continues to be an investor with us. Uh, we commend them for the model that they undertake in building companies and they build some extraordinary, highly valuable companies. But we're not in the game of building those kinds of companies. We build a slightly different you know, version of those kinds of companies and ultimately look to create value in slightly different ways than they do. What's the, what's the key difference between well, an Arch-created company versus one that belongs in Accelerator? Well, I think that there are certain deals that we would do that Arch would look at, but they wouldn't do them themselves. Some of these that look like single asset type plays, for example. You know, and there are some legitimately some technologies that we look at that are truly simply too early for Arch or if Arch were to intercede would require a substantial, you know, 50, 100 million dollar type financing. And they only have capacity to do so many of those kinds of deals. And so when you look at the selection pressure that they have in driving to the deals that they do versus the kind of things that we do, it then actually the overlap between the things that we and they see very, very different. Right. You mentioned people a few times. Uh, I, I this really cannot be overstated, uh, how important they are, how important relationships are yep. to this business. It's funny, when you ever when you announce a new company, I can often sort of trace the family tree. Like I know that comes from somebody Thong worked with before or somebody that someone else on your team yeah. uh, has worked with before. Yes. Uh, and let, let's talk, you've also brought in, in addition to the additional resources, that $60 million fund that you're working out of, uh, bigger than what you've had before. You've brought in 
a new team of people and some really experienced heavy hitters, both from on the board and on the full-time team. Yeah. The board, I mean, Steve Gillis at Arch, Tachi Yamada, Bruce Carter, Barbara Dalton. These are very experienced, savvy people on your board. And then you've also brought in more recently on your on your regular team, you've got a, a full-time CFO uh, in Ian House mm-hmm. and Ken Moeller mm-hmm. as chief development officer mm-hmm. of longtime entrepreneur in Seattle Biotech. Yeah. Um, what are you? What, what's your thought process on um, the kind of people that you you want and need to do this kind of work? Well, so I mean, obviously, I mean, first of all, I mean, I have to take a step back and say that I'm humbled by the quality of the folks that we've been able to attract to our cause, because, you know, as you've mentioned, I mean, when it comes to building a new company or a business or growing an existing business, people absolutely matter. And I knew this from day one. And one of the things that I very thoughtfully did when I joined the accelerator was took a look at what we had and looked at what we needed. And I very carefully tried to uh, cultivate and recruit uh, people to join our cause. And uh, I was very fortunate that a number of folks that I've crossed paths with over the year, the likes of Bruce Carter and Tachi Yamada, uh, Sundar Kodialam, who was introduced to me in New York, who has been a wonderful mentor to me. Uh, I got these people engaged with the work that we're doing. And they have genuinely followed the passion that we have in building companies and joined us to help. And that has simply strengthened our game and raised the bar in terms of how we look at things and the type of people that we want to have involved in these companies. And so uh, I think you're right. I mean, if you look across the companies that you see us create, there's going to be no surprise in terms of the individuals or the connections there because they're people that we've either crossed paths with before or dealt with before or we knew through one or two degrees of separation. And uh as you know, in this business, when you're involved in venture capital, building new businesses, you often work with people who you can trust and uh, who have the intellect and the capacity to do the kinds of things that you need to do. And that's certainly what we've done here at Accelerator is we've brought a lot of these folks who are talented, who can give us a fresh look at technology and really have the passion and excitement. And, uh, you know, I, I think also the other thing that you will note among the people I've worked with is they're, they're all incredibly humble people. They're people who don't put themselves first but they put the science and the entrepreneur, you know, first and on a pedestal. And it is very similar to the way that I operate. And, you know, frankly, our team operates. And uh, that ethos has continued to, to flow through all the things that we've done. Now, if you're a scientific entrepreneur, you got uh, a discovery, maybe, you know, um, your colleagues are pretty excited about it. You, you might be able to talk to some venture capitalists. Um, why come to Accelerator? versus one of those other outfits? Well, I think it's, uh, you know, like I said, I mean, a lot of the folks that we end up talking to, they don't often talk to 50 venture capitalists before they get to us. We are usually among the first calls that, you know, that we get from these PIs when they come up with a discovery, or quite frankly, we find something and then we reach out to them and have a conversation. Um, and from my point of view, we, we encourage, uh, you know, scientists and entrepreneurs to talk to a lot of different folks. And I think that the reason why people end up coming to us, working with us and engaging with us is because we actually care about the work that's being done and we will engage at a level that others won't. We will spend the time that's needed to to look at and vet a technology. We will give very clear, candid feedback uh, where others might just say, oh, it's just too early for us or we can't get there or they defer the decision making and they don't dig into the details and they give it to somebody else and then they walk away from it. Uh, That's not the model of engagement that we have. We actually, when we look at something and it's legitimately interesting, we spend the time, energy, and the resources to really get to the bottom of what's there. And we're transparent with the uh, entrepreneurs all the way along the path. And you know, amongst any of the, the, the seven groups that we are currently working with today, 
You talk to any one of those entrepreneurs and they'll tell you the same thing, which is the reason they went to work with us is because they felt and they were confident in the fact that we would be the best option for developing their technology to the next stage of the game. Now, you uh, rebranded this uh, operation, I think, uh, last year or actually not that long ago. Accelerator Life Science Partners. Why did you? It used to be just Accelerator Corp. Why why do you make that change? You 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 spiff up your website. (laughs) You add some people. But why change? Well, I think uh, I think a kind of a number of things kind of led us in this path. And one of which was that you know uh, as we were kind of continuing to go out with the the the, the accelerator moniker, it just became increasingly more confusing because you could just drive down Seattle downtown and you can find maybe three or four different accelerators, a variety of different flavors. Well, that's certainly is that the term the term became generic, almost like Kleenex. Anybody that wants to help uh, startups advance in one way or another is an accelerator. Exactly, and. That convoluted, I think, from the message of what it is that we did. So that was a real problem. Uh, I think the other side of it was for us, you know, having done the work that we had been doing and building these companies and really kind of really establishing our model and our investment strategy, it felt like the right time for us to apply the same ethos and methodologies that others that, that, that we've taught you to say, you know, it's time to be focused. If one is going to be focused and really be clear about what it is what, that one does, how do you do that? How do you articulate that? And it became very clear that for us, it meant that we needed to really be uh, precise and more refined in terms of what it is and how we describe what it is that we do. That then led us down this path of saying, you know what, it probably is about time for us to refresh what it is that we are and, and what we call ourselves. And that's what led us to Accelerator Life Science Partners, because we partner with companies in the life sciences to help accelerate their progress. It fits very nicely with what we do, and it's consistent with our singular focus on partnership. And these people that you have hired in the recent uh, year or so actually have that term, that name operating partner. So their job in many cases is to roll up the sleeves, as VCs like to say, and, and, partner. and, and work with the scientific entrepreneur. Correct. Correct. And so we have, you know, and this has been something that we've actually have done over the last, you know, a few years or so as we've been running Accelerator, but we've, we've had a cadre of very highly skilled executives that we have been able to, you know, kind of corral to our cause. And they have done exactly that. They've partnered with the scientific entrepreneurs and the development folks, and they've really added value in an operating sense. And uh, we established a group of operating partners. There's some eight folks that are involved with us now. Uh, to help us. And they're similar in some respects to an entrepreneur in residence. Uh, they tend to be more operationally focused, though, because what we do is we try to find opportunities that are well down the, the path of those individuals' experiences. And then we engage them in a way that's not just sort of a, oh, you just kind of dip your toe in and, you know, kind of see what's going on and then call it good. These are actually individuals that step in and serve operating roles within these companies. And uh, in very short order, they understand the way that we look at the world. They understand what it takes to build business, and they partner with us to, to make that happen. So they can only, they get deep into maybe just one, one or two. One, maybe two, and that's it. <clears throat> As opposed to you and your home office team, you get yourself spread over the portfolio. Correct. I mean, you're, you're the CEO of how many companies at the current moment? <laughs> Seven. <laughs> Seven companies. Now, that sounds sound like a lot. Um, it does. It, it but keeps your burn rate down on these companies because it does. it's you have one salary and it gets spread among seven That's right. companies. It's lean. But at some point, how, how do you know when a company needs 
a full-time management team? Well, we, we make that decision in concert with our board and we determine what amount of energy and effort is really required to take a company to that next level. And so we look at this realistically and, and to be honest with you, I mean, it does sound like a lot and it is a lot. I'm not going to lie about that, but it's manageable because we have in some of the cases with some of these companies, we have operating partners that are driving these efforts and they're working alongside me. So the, the bandwidth requirements day to day are not so bad because I've got other folks' hands and legs in into these deals that allows us to have that leverage. I also have an incredibly talented team of professionals. We are eight strong here across the, uh, the three locations that we're in. And I've got some exceedingly sharp project managers, development experts, et cetera, that are part of our core investment team that provides me with the additional bandwidth to, to oversee what's going on in these projects. And uh, we are obsessive about each and every one of these companies. And we apply what we need to to ensure that nobody's getting short shrifted on time or effort. And it allows me then to orchestrate these seven companies because we have very talented resources and capabilities involved regularly in each of these companies who then work closely with me to make sure that we're, we're hitting everything on track. You mentioned three locations. We've said Seattle and New York. San Diego is the third, right? That is correct. And that came about through um, enlisting the help of of a couple of very senior VCs in that region. That's right. uh, Court Turner and Wendy Johnson. Correct. Uh, These are people who have their fingers into a lot of pies in that cluster where they're going to hear about things maybe before a Thong Lee who hops on a plane and goes to San Diego once in a while. That's right. I mean, over the years, I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've had a lot of interactions with the research institution in San Diego, but the, the more important development is a, is a people-oriented one. And you put your finger right on it, which is, you know, this effort is anchored by two incredibly talented individuals who are, by their own rights, uh, been involved in the entrepreneurial ecosystem for many, many years. Both are highly skilled, highly well-regarded. And uh, we are honored to partner with both of them to help establish our office in San Diego. And, uh, you know, they, they, they don't come with a lot of need for babysitting, to be honest with you, because, you know, court in and of his, his own right, you know, over the last 20 years has been in San Diego, knows virtually everybody in the ecosystem, has built some six or so companies there. And on top of that, he and our friends, <laughs> which makes it easy. The same with the same goes with Wendy. I mean, again, an incredibly talented entrepreneur. She's working today on a couple of different projects, some that are under the radar screen, others, uh, you know, with a little bit more visibility. But again, very seasoned, very talented entrepreneur, both of whom have venture backgrounds as well, have worked in venture capital at uh, respective firms. And uh, their DNA is a very good fit with ours. And uh, it became very clear that, you know, when the opportunity presented itself, I jumped on it and said, I'd love to to do more with both of you guys. Well, you mentioned Court being a friend. I mean, this is an important point that um, trust is the glue. <laughs> when you're going in there to um, to work long and hard on this highly uh, risky kind of project, um, you don't want to deal with jerks. You, you want to deal with people who whose word means something. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I don't think these kind of people just <laughs> jump for... You know, anybody that that wants to pay him a salary. No, I, I don't think so. And, I, I, you know, I, I can't underscore the importance of that. I think that one of the things that we've been fortunate to build at Accelerator is this, you know, this mantra of having people who are, you know, very understated, people who are have patience and uh, I think treat people with respect and integrity. That is, first and foremost, an incredibly important thing for me, but it's important for also our members of our team as well. And in Wendy and Court, we found that in spades. And uh, the timing was just right because we were looking with interest uh, of doing more in San Diego. And this gave us the platform to be able to make that happen. 
Let's talk about a couple of these companies, a little bit on the science. Sure. Um, <laughs> I think the first couple of deals that represented your new strategy with larger dollar amounts and uh, that aggressive move into the new geography of New York were Petra, Pharma, and Lodo. Yeah. And these were a couple, I'll just say off the top for people who are unfamiliar, Petra Pharma is co-founded by Lou Cantley and uh, Nathaniel Gray, a couple of very seasoned scientific entrepreneurs, heavy hitters. Cantley was a co-founder of Agios Pharmaceuticals. This is his next thing. Uh, Lodo is a, a spin-out from Rockefeller University, Sean Brady. Uh, he's sequencing bacterial genomes to, mm -hmm. to look for um, ways to fight drug-resistant bacteria. Mm -hmm. Um, so, uh, tell me about how those are coming along. It's been a couple years now, right? Yeah. Yeah. Both of those are doing really well. I mean, I, I think in the case of Petra, it is the first company out of our set that we've graduated, officially graduated from the accelerator. So we brought on a highly talented team of executives to, to take that over, led by Brian O'Callaghan. And then obviously our, even our own CSO, who, uh, who had been involved very early in the foundation of this company, joined that team as their CSO full time. Uh, and then he, along with David Rennes, who's their CFO and general counsel, uh, make up the core of the executive team there. And uh, so far, they've done well. I mean, they hope to have a clinic uh, sometime uh, towards the end of this year, early part of next. They're uh, well on track and uh, are in the process of, of, of broadening the company's platform and uh, capabilities, I would say. Um, so things there are going well. The collaboration with uh, Wild Cornell has also gone well. We've enjoyed uh, immensely working with Lou Cantley and, and Nathaniel Gray. Um, and it was a great choice for us for, as a first deal, right? Because it represented all the things that Accelerator does and does well. Focus on a disruptive area of science that we intuited and identified uh, that was highly attractive and valuable and uh, found a way to mobilize, you know, in this case, a pretty substantial financing, but it allowed us to get to a rapid reduction to therapeutic practice uh, around uh, some targets that we found to be incredibly interesting. And we're well on our way to doing that, uh, you know, per our plan. Uh, Lodo also is another interesting case where we found a very disruptive technology. We'd looked at it for uh, well over a year. And, uh, you know, in mining the bacterial genome to look at metagenomic regions to use that as a tool to, to screen for drugs, we saw that as highly valuable and disruptive. But uh, like anybody else in looking at the space, I mean, you look at it with some caution because if your goal is to develop new antibiotics, uh, that landscape is challenging. But we were able to overcome a lot of those challenges, number one, you know, with a partnership with the Gates Foundation, who stepped in and alongside us invested capital to get the company off the ground. And, and secondarily, to be able to apply very early on a set of focus around the therapeutic development efforts so that, you know, while we are developing some stuff in the infectious disease side, we're looking beyond uh, what bacterial genomes can actually encode for. We actually are looking beyond uh, ID. We're looking at other areas like oncology and other rare diseases where this platform and this approach could lend and create some value. And while we're still in the early days of that, it's still an incredibly attractive, highly valuable, and very differentiated approach to doing it. Um, that I think that we'll be able to, to, to create some value. And, that, and that's going really well. I mean, the company's now well over 16 bodies uh, in New York City, and the company's humming along. And uh, obviously, as you probably noted, um, we inked a huge collaboration with Genentech uh, worth nearly a billion dollars. Uh, and that has allowed us to get some more commercial focus around what we do in the way of products. It's not just antibiotics. And uh, you're, you're getting some of that input from your pharma investors, your corporate strategics. Yes, um, Genentech Roche is not one of them, no. but they saw some value, evidently. They, they did. They, they did a partnership. 
Um, and coming back to the relationships, you mentioned Gates Foundation. Well, Charlotte Hubbard is over there at Gates Foundation Venture Capital. She's an alumnus of this this place, Accelerator. Yes. You've known her for a long time, so yes. have I. <laughs> yes. Uh, this is how it works. Yes. Yes. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, the merits of the science ultimately wins out, I think. And then also, you know, like I said, it, it requires clever navigating uh, of, of waters when you talk about product development and we talk about the risk because what you start with from the beginning is not necessarily what you end with it, end with at the end. But I think at least from what, you know, the, the job that we're tasked with is giving these companies a strong, solid foundation scientifically from a development point of view and then giving them a very strong path to continuing that. Uh, either with, like I said, non-dilutive capital, if we can bring that in, or other sources of resources to turbocharge the product development efforts so that the companies have the ability to see themselves to the next uh, checkpoints. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that Charlotte would just do an investment with her old friend Thong. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, they do their yeah. diligence yeah. Um, very carefully. Mm-hmm. Um, now, just this week, as we were recording this, you've announced a new company, a $31 million Series A. It's in the same kind of bucket as those two previous companies, Petra and Lodo. Yeah. I think Petra got $40 million 48, or yeah. 48 in its Series A, and 17 went into Lodo. Total to, 20, actually, yeah. To but, get it started. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but these are bigger than traditional accelerator investments. They are. Now, 31 going into Magnolia Neuroscience out of a collaboration with uh, MD Anderson. Uh, what's the idea here? Well, it's pretty unique. I mean, uh, we over the number of years, and it's probably not a surprise, I mean, when you look at the fact that we have four pharma strategics, I mean, all of them are keenly interested in developing novel therapeutic approaches for neurodegeneration. This comes down to uh, looking at, you know, the, the fundamental biology that drives, uh, you know, neuronal cells. And it also comes down to dealing with some of the later, more symptomatic issues that occur when patients develop these debilitating diseases. And, uh, you know, a, as it stands, when we first got Accelerator started, I mean, this was certainly an area of interest that we'd flagged that we would look into. But until that time and until, you know, actually more recently, we just hadn't found a technology that we felt that was you know, either E, A, disruptive enough, but B, was one that we could take to a point that a reasonable Series A could get you to, right? And so for years, we continue to look at a variety of different technologies and approaches. And uh, during that time, I mean, more recently, we came across the work that was being done at MD Anderson. And without going into too many of the gory details of that, what we found there was a, a, a series of very elegant work that had been done by uh, two of our co-founders with MD Anderson. This is uh, you know Phil Jones and Jim Ray. Uh, they are involved with the uh, organization within MD Anderson that does drug discovery, and then you know obviously Jim is affiliated with a, a, a neuro consortia that had been put together to look at uh, neurological-related uh, conditions that are affiliated with cancer treatment and things like that. Chemo brain. Chemo brain, uh, you know, chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy, things like that. Mm-hmm. And through the work that they had done there, they had uncovered some pretty interesting things around uh, early-stage biology that impacts the disease of neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's and things like that. And so building off of the work that they had done there, we found to be compelling. And uh, we found a unique opportunity for us to then step in in collaboration with the work that had been done there to pick that up and to very rapidly translate that into a therapeutic project with with the goal being that we would take a very different approach to attacking the disease. And this is one that looks more fundamentally at neuronal injury and one that looks more at, you know, what are the, the drivers of which kill uh, neural cells, you know, when they go through this uh, neural a- apoptosis sort of process? Program, and from, program, program cell, cell death. death. This is something that 
cancer biologists have looked at for a long, long time. Uh, can you can you induce apoptosis? Mm-hmm. Can you get those tumors to start committing cell suicide? Correct. That's been very, very difficult to do. I don't think anybody's figured it out in a approved product, but. This is how science works. Uh, maybe it doesn't work in, in one certain application, but you find out that, gee, maybe maybe we can uh, like stop apoptosis. We can block that process, which appears to be damaging neurons. Yes. Maybe we can protect those neurons that appear to be dying off as a, a novel mechanism for, say, Alzheimer's. That's right. And what they found is, uh, you know, they had done a very you know elegant set of studies that, you know, looking at the work that they had done in others, they actually found that there are, you know, when you actually can do that, you know, by blocking, you know, certain of these chemical, you know, pathways, they actually found that, you know, some pretty unique things happened. They looked at the phenotype of animals where that had occurred, and they found that you could actually rescue, uh, you know, some of the effects that you see from these debilitating diseases. Uh, the uh, especially in the, in the setting when neuronal cells are injured, they found that when you block some of these pathways, they found that you can undo some of that injury. So when we looked at that, we just said, "Wow, that's really cool." Right. But on top of that, if you've got molecules to, to drive that you know, effect, boy, that would be really compelling. And that's certainly what we found here. Yeah. I mean, it's not uh, I mean, neurological models in animals can be challenging. Yes, we, we know. So there's a lot of work, I'm sure, that needs to be done here. Yeah. You're taking on a lot of risk. That's par for the course. That is. And that's part of the reason why we had to power this up to a $31 million Series A. There's a very intentional reason as to why that number is the magic number for us, because uh, using that you know, using that as part of our math, and you'll see more about this in, in, in the weeks ahead, but uh, we have a very clever strategy on how we're planning to actually get you know proof of concept, in vivo proof of concept, around this approach, and then to very rapidly drive this to a, uh, a molecule that then can go into the clinic and actually have some real outcomes. So with this investment, that's exactly what we're planning to do. And that approach is going to play itself out here in the relative near future. And we're really excited about it, obviously. So starting companies is one thing. I mean, that's uh, that represents a lot of heavy lifting. As you say, once you've gotten that press release, that probably represents at least a year worth of hard work yeah. to even get it going. Yeah. Uh, but that's not, you know, you don't go to your board at the end of each year and, and really get evaluated on that. No. That's, that's kind of like baseline expectation. What do you need to show to them? I mean, and at what point do you need to start showing some, some, some measurable impact? I think it's different for each of the investors. But as I kind of said, like sort of in the beginning of this conversation, I mean, one of the things that we saw were stakeholders that were in this for, you know, with us for the long term. And long term means that you're not looking at an outcome in two or three years, because I think that that's just simply unrealistic. And look, we've been investing now for a little over four years. So a lot of the projects that we've gotten involved, they're still at the very early beginning stages. And I think that to expect a quick outcome or a flip of these assets or an acquisition, I think is just unrealistic or, you know, maybe we get lucky with something, you know, but I can't count on that to be the approach. And I think that the way that our investors look at this is they look at, you know, the overall quality of the companies that we're building, because like I said, at the end of the day, there's a huge feedback loop that goes into building each of these companies. And we are very deliberately focusing on making sure that we've got all the pieces that we need to build a very valuable, high quality company. And we are measured more around the overall set of companies that we have, How are those companies doing? Are they going to the direction that they need to be going in terms of proving the science, advancing and pushing the ball to getting to us closer to a therapy that really is going to matter to solving some of these diseases? Because look, uh, when you talk about a company like Magnolia, right, 
at the end of the day, great. It's $31 million financing novel approach. Great. The thing that really matters to me and to the other folks sitting around the table is that we all realize that Alzheimer's is a horrible disease. It affects more than 20 million patients. And there is virtually nothing that you have to treat that disease. And the fact of the matter is, is if we can put something on the market that will fundamentally change that disease, that is the thing that these people sitting around the table that have invested in this deal, that is what they want. If we can do that once or twice and have something that at the end of the day will have a meaningful impact on the disease, that more than pays for everything that we're doing here. So you're talking about FDA-approved products, uh, not just sort of the interim markers of success like business development deals or an IPO or even an acquisition. Plenty of companies have provided great returns for VCs, but they never ended up developing a drug. No. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think ultimately, you know, when you look at what we're trying to do, I mean, we're really trying to move the needle. And I think it'd be wonderful if some of these projects that we're working on that are earlier, that they get picked up by some of our strategics. Because I think at the end of the day, you know, while we'll score a financial win for that, which is fabulous, what that really means for that asset or that technology is it now has the depth of resources to really push product development in a way that a small company can't. And that's what we're really targeting, right? I mean, and I had this conversation, I think, with a number of our strategic where they said, you know, we're going to invest in, I don't know, eight or 10 of these projects. The one thing that we're looking for is the one project that we invest in and that ultimately becomes meaningful to us, that we take it on and that it becomes a huge blockbuster success. That more than pays for everything that you're doing here. So they pick it up at one of those classic phase two proof of concept uh, milestones and they take it from here. That's what pharma's good at. That's right. And for a pretty modest investment of which they're, what they're doing with us, uh, that's a huge win. A huge win. And so from our point of view, we're trying to assemble enough bets that at the end of the day, the trend line is looking that we're moving in a positive direction with, us, with regards to the development and the approach that we're taking and the ultimate product that we will have in a vial that will help patients. And I think if we deliver enough of those shots on goal that look like they're going to get there, that is going to be our longer term measure of success, more so than a short term, you know, two or three X, you know, outcome on a small asset that we might be working on. Because that's really, you know, while that's nice, that doesn't win it for us in terms of what we're, we're hoping to achieve here. Well, you're four years in on this. Like I said at the, at the top, we're about the same age. We're in our early 40s. Um, hopefully you can see uh, over the next 20, 25 years that we're still <laughs> kicking around in this business. You'll see at least a couple of these things really pan out. No, it's been wonderful. I mean, even from the stuff that I've done early on, even WRF, I mean, I've got under my belt now at least two or three companies that have actually gotten products on the market where they've had a huge impact. You mentioned Hyperion, you know, Halosource, another company that we had that had some products, you know, Alder's on the verge of, uh, you know, product approval with a novel migraine antibody that we worked on. And, you know, we're in all of those deals for a long, long time, but they're finally getting there. Even Chorus and Cystic Fibrosis, we backed a drug early on with a Series A investment, and it's now a FDA-approved product that's helping you know thousands of patients with CF. Inhalable antibiotics. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Uh, if I can notch a few more of those under my belt, I would love to see that happen or be a part of those stories. And that's that's really why we do all this. And that that is the measure that ultimately matters to our stakeholder. Best of luck, Thong. Thanks for joining me here on The Long Run. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Luke. Thanks for listening to The Long Run, a production of Timberman Report. Pedro Rosado of Headstepper Media was the producer and editor. Music comes from D.A. Wallach. And thanks for listening. Tell your friends about it on your favorite podcast app or on social media. 
If you're interested in sponsoring the show and in raising awareness of your work among biotech industry thought leaders, send me an email at luke at timbermanreport.com. See you next episode.